Welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Box with your host and CEO of Babelbox, Sherry Langberg. Sherry interviews the world's biggest brands, agencies, and influencers to uncover their influencer marketing secrets to success. Go behind the scenes and learn how you can make influencer marketing part of your social media playbook. Subscribe to Beyond the Box at podcast.babelbox.com. Listen to all of your favorite episodes and follow us on Instagram for more influencer marketing inspiration. In the world of publishing, content is key, particularly when it is celebrity focused. Today, we're going to get the inside scoop from Lindsay Benoit on what it's like to work as a deputy editor in entertainment and partnerships. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi. How are you today? I am doing really well. It's a little cold here, but busy. Keeps it warm. Yeah, exactly, right? I feel like it's been a very mild winter so far. I know you started your career in PR, public relations, and you know, doing a lot of shifts. How did you end up from PR onto the editorial side of the business? I, I started out actually thinking I was going to be a journalist all along from a very young age. And then in college, my best friend, Lauren, said, you should be a publicist. And I was like, what's a publicist? And so I looked it up and it sounded really interesting. And so I started taking classes and studying it and I got internships really young and I started interning at Random House and I interned for the editorial side and the PR side. And I felt that at that time in my life, PR was where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And I worked for some amazing companies. I worked for Condé Nast and I did big red carpet events under my mentor, Susan Portnoy, who taught me so much about PR and celebrity in my early 20s. And then the recession happened and I was going to lose my job because those big budget events like Fashion Rocks and Movies Rock were going away because that was just a really scary time. I actually got my walking papers, but then there was a job opening at Self for a publicist job under Lauren Theodore, who was an amazing, amazing boss of mine as well. And I vied for it. And Susan was like, we're going to get you that job. And so I went in as PR, but, but as, and this was, gosh, this was down back in what, 2009, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, When the recession happened. And so as I was there, the internet magazines were a little bit slow to the internet back then, but the internet was really starting to amp up. And Lucy Danziger, editor-in-chief, did this series called Five on Five. And it was a webisode series where she interviewed talent. And Laura Brownstein, who was the entertainment director there, let me book some of the talent. And she took me under her wing and she helped me, taught me how to book talent. And so I was still doing my other job as a publicist under Lauren. And Lauren was, was awesome enough to let me fly there. And that was the beginning of me taking a stab at entertainment booking. And, and that was the beginning of me starting my very slow transition to editorial, which happened over several years. And so as I transitioned into my career, I went on to work at Women's Health. And at Women's Health, they allowed me to start booking. I started building more and more relationships and they allowed me to start not only do PR there, um, I I headed up the PR department there, but also booking partnerships in terms of, you know, TV shows. I would help do an editorial feature in book with the talent on the Today Show and do a great segment. And I started building more and more connections. And then they started letting me book inside celebrities. And so I was doing two jobs at once but learning so much. And because I was doing two jobs at once, I was building a parallel career while still maintaining my other. Mm -hmm. 
And, and that is when I actually raised my hand after a while. And I said, you know what, I really would like to start transitioning my career. And I approached my editor in chief and I said, I'd like a title change. I'd like to be able to, yes, keep doing your PR, but I'd like to be special projects um, director as well. And we had a big conversation. We talked about what that would look like and she let me. And so as my title started changing, so did my responsibilities. And then eventually things just kept kind of evolving for me and the PR stopped, the partnerships grew, the entertainment booking grew. And that's where I kind of kept going until I stopped doing PR altogether and everything else took over. Okay. So I'm going to probably ask you some off topic questions. Cause I find this so fascinating. It's a world beyond me. How do you just go book celebrity talent? Like how will you go to their agent? What do you do? <laughs> a lot of prayer. <laughs> it, um, you know, it, there's a lot more to it than people think. It's not just, you know, saying, oh, I want this person to be on my cover. Oh, I want to interview this person. You have to think about it strategically if you're going to do it right. One, you have to think about why they make sense for you. You have to think on their side, do they have a project going on that they want to promote? Because you want to be able to help them mm-hmm. with their initiatives as well. And it's a lot of relationship building. So it's constant conversations with talent reps, publicists, managers, and depending on if it's um, a paid opportunity, an agent, to know what their talent are doing, who has things on the roster, and what their interests are. You wouldn't want to go to a celebrity about a podcast when they don't like podcasts, nor would you want to go to that publicist if the publicist is anti-podcast too. Mm-hmm. And that happens. So you really have to think about who the perfect person is and what that perfect formula is and then deliver. And the pitching process is you have to get approval from your editor-in-chief or your boss is to making sure it's the right fit for the brand mm-hmm. and having backups because your first ask might be a definite no. Right. And then you have to go to the next person. And so it's a it's a lot of conversation. It's carefully crafted plans. It's a lot of back and forth and it's getting used to the word no. I get rejected a lot. <laughs> so we got to build a thick skin. Well, I guess, you know, there's the trade-off because doing events in PR is a lot hard. It's hard too. You're out every single night. So, you know, the, I guess they're all hard, right? Oh yeah. I think that with PR, you're still getting rejection, right? So, oh, yeah. so I think that my job in PR really helped me become an editor because of the writing you have to do in PR has to be so succinct and you have to make sure all your message points are, are delivered appropriately. You can't, every word matters. And I think that that matters when you're thinking about planning a pitch for a celebrity for what you want them to do. Every word matters. I also think understanding from the PR side, I know what, what my brand will need. And Mm -hmm. I also know from a publicist standpoint, how to protect the brand, how to protect the publicist, how to make sure both of their interests are being taken into account, which I think is important when you're working on both sides. You want to make sure that everybody's happy because that's going to deliver the best content. And in PR, you get used to rejection too. You're pitching, you know, the New York Times or you're pitching all these great story ideas and you think, this is such a great story. Well, they're getting a million of, this is such a great story. And I never realized the extent of how many pitches an editor gets until I became one. (laughs) And now my volume in my inbox is so great. And I'm like, wow. And there's some great ideas you just either don't have the bandwidth. It might not be a perfect fit. But because I was on the other side, I try my hardest to email everybody back. Even if it's a, I'm so sorry, it's it's a pass. Mm -hmm. Because I know what it feels like to never get an email back. 
Oh no, it's uh, it's a very, you know, I, I think in anything, it's like sales is the same thing. You send an email, PR, you know, editorial, it's all the same. It's just having the skin to keep going back and trying again. Yeah, exactly. And you know, a no to me is just a reason to maybe update my pitch to be a little bit stronger or to say, okay, this wasn't right for this celebrity, but do you have any other clients that might be a fit? And, and just open up a dialogue with that person to really understand why the rep doesn't like it or why their talent might not like it. And sometimes it's just a bandwidth issue. You know, they're filming, they're busy, or sometimes it's because it's truly not a right fit for them. Or sometimes it's because the, their rep is just not thinking it's a right fit. And there's a thousand asks they get every day and they have to be, they can't do everything. Right. So you can't take it personally. And I think that that was a lesson that I didn't learn until Oh, maybe like five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's true. And uh, I had an uncle, he's safe. They don't let me in the front door. I go through a window and if the window's closed, I find the garage, but the rejection is definitely hard. But to your point, like nine times out of 10 has nothing to do even with your pitch or with anything. It's it's the people on the other end, they're too busy or there's it's not yeah. a right fit. So I, I get it. And I, I also appreciate, like it's amazing that you're sending back responses to people because few people do that. It's well, I just know how it felt to be on the other side. And I think that that makes me a, a better, a better editor, right. And a better booker, because I understand that the publicists are busy and they're pitching me. And it's also, you know, listen, they have a bunch of clients that might not be the A plus list, but that are growing and emerging. And if I can find something interesting that may work with that talent, I want to help them too, because I understand that like, I'm not always going to get the A plus list rock stars. I, but I could get something really amazing and compelling from somebody that's emerging and help them grow. Exactly. You know, and I think that that's important too. Exactly. So now when did you switch over to Thrive Global? So I started at Thrive Global in May, 2018. No, 2019. No. I started at Thrive Global in May, Tell us about the company and like the, like, what's the company about? What's the mission? Obviously we know it's Ariana Huffington. Tell us more. So what intrigues me the most, I have been in magazines for the greater part of my year. So 15 plus years I've been in, in the publishing industry. And so this was a big change for me to leave magazines in particular. And I love magazines and it wasn't a decision I made quickly. It wasn't a decision I made lightly either. I had an amazing career and I loved working with Good Housekeeping and Cosmo and Women's Health. My editor-in-chief were brilliant and believed in me and let me take chances. So everybody I worked with at Hearst was so supportive, so wonderful. So it wasn't that like I was looking for a job. I wasn't. But one of the people that worked here at Thrive had reached out to me and said, I know you'd probably never leave Hearst, but I need to tell you about this company it's really making a big difference. And, and I think it's up your alley. And would you entertain a phone call? And you always entertain a phone call. You mm-hmm. have to, you know, and this, especially in the publishing world where things are, are not always so safe and magazines are closing and they're amazing or they're changing and evolving. Jobs are being eliminated. So you have to kind of think like, maybe I should take the call. So I, I took the call and I learned that all about Thrive. Thrive is a behavior change company. And What's so unique about it is the fact that the mission is really trying to change the game in work-life integration. So everything we do at its core is helping to alleviate stress and, and really fight the burnout epidemic. And so that can be in the office, that can be in your relationships, that can be as a parent. 
And the content that Thrive delivers and the, the articles that we write are all driven by what Ariana likes to call micro steps, which are mm-hmm. small things that you can do to make a big impact. And it's all science backed. So for instance, you're setting a goal for yourself and if it's too big, you're guaranteed to fail if it's too big. But if you start these small, if you build these small little micro steps into your day, they're going to grow and you're going to form those habits and you're going to be able to reach that goal and actually keep it, which I think is fascinating. And so Thrive is a SaaS company actually, which is very cool. And Ariana and team are building this app, which Mm -hmm. is a B2B. And they have curriculum where they go into companies and they help companies give curriculum to their employees, which will help them. There's the thriving mind, there's thriving relationships, there's thriving parenthood. And it's all of this curriculum that's going to help their employees achieve more, help them with organization, prioritization. And it's really making a big difference and a big impact in, in their lives. Yeah, I noticed um, I took, you know, I was kind of poking through. So I did see it was a SaaS platform. Is Are the apps developed and they're already in market or they're in development? They are worked on and they're evolving and growing as okay. we speak. And so there are companies that are actively using them now. That's awesome. And so my question to you is just, this is my background, like kind of, I worked at Weight Watchers, all these different micro steps we would talk about, but I noticed in your content, it's a lot of other content and nothing diet food, fitness related, I'm going to assume that's intentional. Well, actually we are growing our, what we call fuel content. So we are, um, one of the things that I do is I interview amazing role models, thought leaders, celebrities about their expertise and what their micro steps might be. And we are launching now a series with certified trainers and nutritionists, registered dietitians that are giving they're helpful micro steps on how to fit more movement into the day and how to, you know, prioritize movement and to make smarter nutrition choices and ways that you can do so without falling off of that, that fitness bandwagon or falling or coming into a lull or when you have a lull, what you can do. So we are doing that, but it's, it's, Thrive is always science-backed and always expert-based. So it's about things that will help you reach your goals Mm -hmm. realistically. Okay. And then these experts in these categories, does everyone that you interview have to, like the whole company have to be celebrity status or is it, you know, you could be a subject matter expert, but you might not be that celebrity or is it really celebrity focused? Oh no, it's, there's celebrities. There's, CEOs, CHROs, and nutritionists. Yeah, everybody. Okay. Who was the first celebrity you ever booked and why or how? Oh my gosh, the first celebrity I ever booked. Oh my goodness gracious. I, I, that's a hard one. I want to say the first celebrity I might, I mean, I was at self at the time. So I have to say maybe it was somebody like Jillian Michaels, okay. whom I've worked with over a number of years at all of the publications that I've worked with. I think she's so amazing and dynamic and keeps changing. Must have been for the five on five with Lucy Dinsger. And I'd have to look back. I know that I booked 
Katie Lee, I believe back then. Oh gosh, that's a really hard one. How about the I've worked person? with so many celebrities over the years. I was just fascinating. It's so funny. You know, my goodness, I, I really, I can't, I mean, we're going back like to 2007 here. So okay, so I'm going to fast forward. Who was the first person celebrity-wise that you booked at Thrive? Can you remember that one? Yes, I can remember okay. that. So the first person that I booked at Thrive was Sana Lathan. actually. And she was doing this really cool role for the Twilight, the new Twilight Zone. And I think she's fascinating in general. I mean, she has had such an interesting career. She's so thoughtful and introspective. And she meditates, which I think is really interesting. And everything about meditation is so great for your health. Ariana is a huge advocate for meditation. And, And so that was my first foray into really understanding the impact of it and and doing research on that because I think it was my first or second week in the office. So she was the first interview and she was wonderful. And she did a video interview with us. And then that catapulted all of the interviews from that point forward. That's awesome. So in terms of, you know, obviously there's the celebrity side of it, but when you flip over to the influencer marketing stuff, you know, in your past or now past, present, future, can you tell us just a little bit more about like either the programs on the influencer side you've put in place or the systems you've used? Like, how do you build an influencer marketing program that you think works with, you know, a publisher like this? Well, I think, you know, building an influencer campaign and it, it, for anybody, anywhere you are, anywhere you're working, there's a few things you have to think about first. One like what are the deliverables and what are the needs and what are your goals? If you don't know exactly what you want your goal to be first and foremost, then, you know, it's really hard to think about who's going to fit that mold. So are you looking to reach a specific type of influencer, like, you know, a mom influencer or business? It doesn't matter, you know, if they have a huge reach or do you want really, impactful reach with micro influencers because both are valuable just in a different way. If you, if this is a branded content and you're paying money for a campaign that's sponsored, you have to think about it from many different angles. What is the reach, you know, from these people, do you want many people or do you want to invest in one? And a lot of times these influencers will have brand alignment with other brands. So you have to do a lot of research beforehand in order to deliver some ideas of who could be the best fit for you to make sure they don't have any conflicts before you even reach out to them, because then you're just wasting the client's time, getting them excited about somebody that's never going to say yes to them because they're already aligned somewhere else. Yeah. And then you have to make sure that it's authentic to the brand. You know, one of my most interesting interviews that I've ever done was actually with the Bella Twins and they are, you know, WWE superstars. They have, they're entrepreneurs. They have a wine company. They have a clothing company. They are fascinating because they're brilliant. And, you know, you're like, oh, wrestling girls, like what? They're wrestlers. Like they're so much more and they're so dynamic and, and they're huge on social media. Mm -hmm. And, and Brie Bella said, you know, I would never, you have to be authentic to your brand because if I started hawking a cheeseburger, my, my fans would be like, what is this? This is so not on brand for her. She would never, you know, endorse that. This feels awkward. And then maybe she would lose loyalty. And then she said something that was also interesting. She's like, don't always look at the influencer's number. 
She's like, because you never know. She's like, you have to make sure their content is actually authentic and speaks to your brand and makes sense. So if you're going to go after somebody that wouldn't do that, it doesn't make sense. It's not going to move your, your t-shirts or your car or whatever you're trying to promote or even your message because the people that are following them are inevitably, you know, you want them to be true to what you need and actually engage. And I thought that was really interesting and it really kind of changed the game for me for who I recommend. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily about reaching billions of people. It's more about the quality. Yeah. And we see that too. I mean, we, you know, obviously the different asks that come to us, it's like, oh, we want mega, we want macro, we want micro. And sometimes you're just so surprised. Like someone who has like 7,000 followers gets like so many comments that are real, not just like, hey, hi, how are you? But like, you know, real about what they just posted. So definitely, you know, it's, it's really about the quality, I think as well. But again, thinking about the different mission, if you just want awareness, then you do need that reach. But one of the things I'm curious about is you brought up B2B. Now, knowing that part of your play over there at Thrive is really B2B, have you thought about, and you might not be able to say, working with B2B influencers, like more like HR influencers, because we're getting more of those requests too on the B2B side. When you are celebrity is a whole different ballgame when you're booking celebs mm-hmm. and what they can do and how much they get paid to do things from, from the B2B side. There are amazing people out there that are that have great followings that may not be your household name, but can really right. deliver for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that it goes back to the whole point of what is your goal? Are you trying to talk to moms? Are you trying to talk to business leaders? Are you trying to talk to potential clients, you know, and looking at that and then aligning yourself with the right person there. And then under, and then, and then when you're doing that, if you're a brand, you have to understand that if you're asking them to endorse you, you're, you're telling them that they can't for a time being endorse somebody else like your competitor and so on and so forth. So there mm-hmm. is compensation that needs to be discussed in that kind of opportunity. Yeah. So, so that's something to think about when you are going B2B is making sure you budget accordingly because you think, oh, well, I'm paying them to do this and it's not that heavy of a lift. But think about it from this perspective. You are asking them to maybe do a post, which doesn't seem like a lot, but you're also taking them off the market for a little while. Mm-hmm. And so that's revenue for them. So it's it's interesting. It's an interesting play there. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, spe- specifically the mi- the micros and the nanos, it's also making them, making sure they turn off their ads. Because a lot of times if it's a blog post, there's ads popping up everywhere. So that's also the revenue. 100%. And so what's going to take it take for them to actually do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what you're comfortable with. And maybe it's like, they can't turn off all their ads. That's their, that's their livelihood, right? But, right. but if it, it, is it like a competitor or something like that to think about? Yeah, that I think that we always say like there can't be, you know, there's a clause in and out. And, and it could be larger or smaller. Sometimes it's seven day window on either side. Sometimes for some brands, it's three months on either side. So, and then, you know, the compensation increases depending on the scope. Exactly. So I guess my question next to you is, you know, in this world, what do you, what's the biggest challenge you face when it comes to influencer marketing? Is it like the bandwidth? Is it the tools, the reporting? Like, where do you think the hardest part of influencer marketing comes, you know, in your role and, you know, any suggestions on how to remedy that? 
I think the hardest thing is the competition. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of brands vying for the same people. So I think that, and it's also, you know, the hardest thing is really being able to communicate to the talent. You know, we don't have unlimited budgets all the time and why they should be interested in this and, and getting them on board and getting them excited. But also, you know, it's, it's, that's a really interesting question. You know, I really think that if you're, if you're doing it right, Mm-hmm. There aren't many challenges because you're doing your research, you're a- approaching people that make sense for your brand, and maybe they already have something in the works or they don't have the bandwidth, and that's okay. But if you're, but as a booker, if you are, are doing your research and making sure you're communicating to your to your client, or you know your editor or whomever, and planning for the first two people to say no to you, so you have three or four options to go to it, you're setting yourself up for success. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you know how to communicate effectively, if you go in and you say, if this is what you're looking for, this is the minimum I'm going to need to do so from a branded perspective, or they do not like to talk about X, if you're trying to set it up just an editorial interview, make sure that you go in and you are telling everybody in advance to set expectations and to make sure everybody's comfortable, then you're going to avoid so much drama and, and all of the challenges that may arise. I mean, listen, hiccups are going to come, mm-hmm. but, but if you really prepare in advance and you take that time ahead of time, you're going to set yourself up to avoid a lot of stress. Yeah. It's all about kind of really defining the scope and, and the expectations. And I feel that there are like guidelines that we always use, but a lot of times companies or brands don't know that formula and what to include and how specific you have to be. Right. Exactly. And, you know, editorially, you know, booking covers, there's a lot of competition and you are constantly, you know, vying for other magazines covers that might be sexier than yours or have a bigger reach or may not have a bigger reach, but they might really like that fashion director a little bit more or the photographer that you want to work with, you know, won't work with that magazine. There's, there's so many different elements that you have to work and plan for. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, Maybe they don't want to do an interview that is with the focus of this particular magazine. And and so there's a lot of competition there. So if you are, you know, communicating with the talent rep in advance with everything, with the limitations and what they really want, and then you're communicating with your editor or your boss about what you want there and you're getting all those stars aligned. It's just, I think a lot of times we have so much on our plate that we're trying to hurry to get things done instead of really taking that extra 10 minutes just to plan. And that'll, and that's really what helps. And, and I used to rush, rush, rush and get so disappointed when things weren't going in the right direction, but it's because I didn't think through the process. And I was like, of course, this person isn't going to say yes to me. They're going to do this. They're going to do this other magazine. And that makes sense. So if I just had a backup plan, it would have gone smoother. So Mm -hmm. it took time to learn that, but it really helped. And I guess it adds in, like, it's one thing if it's for your brand, but it adds in a layer of complexity, obviously, when it's for another sponsor that you're partnering with. So how do you, you know, or how have you leveraged influencers in a great way to support like brand sponsorships? Or are there any kind of, you know, guidelines for working with a third-party brand and your company and then the influencers? Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely did that when I worked in magazines a lot because, you know, you, and I also, you know, 
you have to have your editorial integrity to make sure that the content is editorially driven. But then when a brand's involved, there's that. So you need to lay it out and make sure like the difference between editorial is, you know, they're, they're not getting paid for editorial. And so it's, it's, it's just, you're getting great content, you're delivering it, you're, you're being able to write it in a really creative way. There are guidelines when it comes to branded. So you need to be really buttoned up with your agreement. You need to be really buttoned up with what you're asking for from the beginning. So working with your team to make sure you know what the deliverables are in advance, how much you want them to post, how often, what do they have to tag? They have to make sure that they are tagging ad when you're paying them, you know, hashtag ad. So you have to set that up for them in advance and you are letting the talent know exactly what they're agreeing to in advance and making sure that everything that the brand needs to have in there is in there, everything that your edit team needs in there is in there. And then leaving room for your company to be able to edit that content and have a back and forth because the influencer is going to write everything that they think is best for them. They want it in their voice. They're still, but they're getting paid. So they still might need to be a little bit of wiggle room with working with them on what the content is. So again, it's like you want to have a clear plan of and delivering in bullet points or however you want to format it, exactly what you're asking that influencer for, what the tags are, you know, what they're going to need to be saying. Um, do they have to supply images? How many? Do they need to be original? Can they repurpose? You mm-hmm. know, what the timeline is and making sure that that is all laid out and knowing that in advance before you even pitch them. And knowing that you can edit them or that you have some kind of, you know, out if you decide that it isn't great and you want to remove it, right? Once you have a contract, you'll probably, you know, unless it's in your contract that mm-hmm. that, that goes away. But, you know, if you're if you're talking about money, you need to make sure that that person is who you want and that you have the agreement there. And in the clause, say that this might be edited and with your approval or however you want to phrase it. But but once you have that contract signed, that person is going to move forward with you in the deal or potential, or you know, you may have to pay them a kill fee or something like that if it does go away. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us your most memorable or you know, an influencer campaign, not necessarily celebrity that just jumps out as your most memorable campaign? Oh. <laughs> there's so many good ones so this wasn't branded this was this was a very cool campaign that I worked with so Holly Whitten was the entertainment hub director at Hearst mm-hmm. and she approached me we would brainstorm sometimes she's brilliant and we would brainstorm sometimes about ideas and she had Fox Searchlight call her and say you know we have Deadpool 2 coming out and we Ryan Reynolds wants to do something different. We want to do something different. What could it be? And so she and I were brainstorming and I was at Good Housekeeping and I said, I, and I always think of Good Housekeeping for anything because it's my favorite. I love that brand so much. I said, wouldn't it be hilarious if we did something with Good Housekeeping, like a Deadpool flip cover or something like that? Totally (laughs) unexpected. She pitched it to them and they were like, yes, never in a million years. So then I had to talk to my editor-in-chief, Jane Francisco, who is so cool and you know, I would throw some very zany ideas at her and she would be like, oh no, what's coming next? But, you know, she's like, let me watch the movie she watched. She goes, Lindsay, this is good housekeeping. We absolutely can't put, you know, Deadpool on the cover. This is crazy. She, and so we kind of talked a little bit and she's like, what if we did a special edition cover? And, you know, and we, it wasn't going to all of our subscribers because that would be, you know, <laughs> it's a right. very traditional magazine, but we could do something special for them. And we did it. And it was a, it's like a collector's item now. It's so cool. And we did it for the December issue. We 
shot Ryan Reynolds in the Deadpool costume on the cover. We actually did an actual shoot. The Deadpool team wrote cover lines with us. Ryan penned an editor's letter. There was a spread inside the magazine, you know, how to carve a chicken by Deadpool and, you know, <laughs> you know, really funny stuff. And it was, and we printed them. So the actual mag, it was the actual magazine, but just with this special Deadpool cover and insert for the Deadpool content. And it was, and then the Fox Searchlight team was brilliant and they, they put it out you know, to all of the festivals and they really did this really cool grassroots campaign about it. And it was so interesting and so cool to see. It was so unexpected. You know, it, it gave good housekeeping, some street cred. I think mm-hmm. people were probably looking at it being like, good housekeeping, get out of here, you know? And, but, but, but people got exposed to the magazine in a totally different way. We took a chance. It was fun. And, and it was so, I think it was so impactful because it was unexpected. And I think that, you know, nobody in the, in the million years would have ever thought that housekeeping would be one of the places that this movie would have been promoted, but it made sense. It really did because people reading it like comedy, like humor, I think it's fun. Like, you know, and, and, and it also is a really fresh magazine where, you know, they're reaching the demographic of everybody from like 20 to, you know, 80 right everybody right. Reads, you know has the opportunity to read good housekeeping at every age and stage and so it was just cool and so that was one of the coolest things and and you know holly holly was just she just you know saw these cool ideas and and jane and and it all worked together so nicely and it was it was very fun it was very fun it was probably one of the highlights of my career it was very cool i mean it definitely also fits with his sense of humor because he has that you know so it, it definitely ties in so perfectly I mean, if you Google Good Housekeeping and Deadpool, you will not be disappointed. Okay, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Especially because I'm Canadian and so is he. So I'm going (laughs) to close with my last... Yeah, I'll close with my last question, which I always ask, and it's name an influencer that you love to follow but hate to admit that you do. Oh my gosh, okay. I mean, this is truth-telling time. Spencer Pratt from The Hills. I think his content <laughs> is so hilarious. You like, you know, they were the the couple you loved to hate back in the day, but he is like such a good dad and he has this really cool crystal company. And I think his content with his kid is just very cute. And so I didn't, I just, I, I was working with Cosmo at the time and they were going to do amazing Hills cover. And so I started looking into the talent and I started following him and I didn't unfollow him after because I just think it's really kind of funny. I really, so he's one I, I think is pretty cool, but I never really, well, I just admitted it publicly, but yeah. That's great. I'm going to check out the crystal company too. So yeah. well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for taking the time and uh, good luck with Thrive Global. It sounds amazing. And, you know, going to keep thank our you. eye out. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, we'll speak thank to you, you soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Beyond the Box, produced by Tough Monkey Entertainment. Beyond the Box is brought to you by Babblebox with your host, Sherry Langbert. Visit podcast.babblebox.com for more episodes and influencer marketing secrets.